Hey everyone, thank you for joining me again for the second episode of Unpacked. Today, Dr. Lena Green, a clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and the executive director of the Hope Center, a mental health clinic connected to the First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem, is joining me to discuss the many ways we can approach mental health and therapy with our families, friends, and with ourselves. This idea came to me in light of the recent conversations about defund the police. It made me think about the number one reason police are even called, domestic disturbances or mental health crises. If you live in a major U.S. city, then you're no stranger to seeing homeless or mentally ill people in the street. Since COVID and due to the limited capacity at shelters and in care homes, there's been an increase in the people who are really on the street an increase in the amount of residents who complain about them, and a lack of empathy from the cities who are tasked to help them. So how do these people end up on the street in the first place? What are cities really doing to help or hurt the mentally ill? And how do we recognize worry signs within our loved ones and ourselves to take steps to get help and maybe prevent things like this from happening in the future? Our discussion with Dr. Green will hopefully shed light on some of these questions and help us going forward to recognize these signs. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. Dr. Lena Green, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm decided to be with here with you here today and talk about this very important topic. Absolutely. I know, um, especially during COVID times, this has been uh, mental health, especially has been such a huge topic that's being discussed. And importantly, because of this time really making us sit with ourselves and recognize things that we probably weren't dealing with before. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. All right. So Uh, Let's just dive into it. So you're first and foremost a clinical social worker and a psychotherapist who have worked in New York City as a social worker for some years. You know, how do you believe major cities, specifically New York City, deals with the mentally ill? Yeah, so um, I'm from New York City, born and raised, um, from Harlem to be exact and have worked in New York City in government um, and also in nonprofit, um, specifically in government for about 20 years. And then I'm relatively new to the nonprofit world. Um, But I think it's important to look at homelessness sort of overall, um, and then talk a little bit about sort of how we got here and sort of how New York City is sort of dealing with the homeless population. Absolutely. so there, 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 there are close to 60,000 pe- homeless people right now, I think, in New York. And a significant number, probably a little over 18,000 or so, um, are children. Um, and I think that's important, right? Because that means that there's, uh, when we think about sort of the hierarchy of needs of people, safety is one of those things, right? And having consistent housing um, is one of those things. And so folks who are living in shelter really have unstable lives right now. Um, And so when we're looking at the issue of homelessness overall, uh, we want to think about what are some of those primary causes? Um, And so one additional thing I'd like to add to that is that 
um, you know, disproportionately the number of people that make up the homeless population are black and Latino with the majority of that being, being black. Um, and, you know, studies have shown that, you know, the people who are unsheltered, the majority of the time, the folks who are not necessarily, who are homeless, but not necessarily in the system, but are known to the system are the people that I think you're talking a little bit about, um, who are living with mental illness or severe health issues, um, who are homeless. Um, and, and that has really been caused by a couple of different things, right? So eviction, um, is one of those things, you know, New York city is, um, very pricey to live in. And so there are people who have been priced out of their neighborhoods because of gentrification. Um, and also because, you know, wages don't sort of match what it costs to, to live here, right? The cost of living here. Um, we also know that since COVID, the incidence of domestic violence has gone up, which has always been an issue. Um, but I think we're seeing the numbers rise a little bit more. Um, job loss has certainly been an issue. Um, and then, you know, I would say some, some, you know, hazardous housing conditions, right? So whether it's an issue of heat or lead um, or rodents, right? Some of these things can also impact people going into the system. Um, so, you know, a couple of decades ago, I would say probably around the 1950s, and it's not just New York City, but many of the cities across the country, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they closed a lot of the psychiatric institutions, right, where folks were were living who were, you know, mentally ill and had some challenges around homelessness or um, some justice involvement. So they closed many of those institutions because they were deemed, you know, inhumane for whatever reason. Um, but the challenge was that once those folks came out of the asylums, they needed some place to go. And they didn't have many places to go because somewhere to go for folks who are mentally ill means that they need access to wraparound community-based services. And the bottom line is that New York City, similar to other large cities and other places around the country, really don't have adequate funding to be able to wrap, to be able to provide those wraparound services. So what ends up happening with folks who are homeless and mentally ill, they end up either being hospitalized, right, because they can't get adequate care, whether it's mental or physical care, um, and then oftentimes may engage in some criminal activity or have some justice involvement. So they end up back in jail and in prison. And then the, sort of the cycle continues. And I think that is something that has really contributed largely to the homeless population in New York City and quite frankly, across the country. Of course, I can only really speak for New York City because this is where I live and this is where I've worked and have seen sort of the impact of homelessness here. I would add just one more thing to that. Um, is that we also have insufficient housing, right? Insufficient affordable housing. And that is another thing that I think plays a role. So to summarize what you're saying, um, you know, we see a lot of homeless come from uh, children being a, a huge driver, uh, people with inadequate housing, uh, increase in gentrification and evictions, um, people who are in and out of the system having an issue. Um, as well as um, those that are mentally ill. And all of this kind of becomes a, a situation that's very difficult to deal with when we notice that the city doesn't really have a lot of funding to take care of those people. Um, is that correct? Yes, I would say that is correct. So my next question, I guess, in regards to that 
just thinking about the um, increase in homelessness and thinking about the situation that's been passed with with COVID, how do you think COVID has really um, either made the situation worse or better in these cities? Yeah, so I think that with COVID, um, you know, hitting hard in places like New York City, we saw, you know, major increases in job loss, right? Um, we saw people, um, I, I, I don't think we saw m- many evictions because I think that was sort of protected during this, co- you know, during the time of COVID. But we did see the incidence of domestic violence again going up. Um, so I would say that those are the things that sort of impacted um, uh, COVID with regard to the homeless population and the mentally ill. Um, and again, going back to when folks get released from prisons, right, they don't come out with a lot of services. And so if you're mentally ill and you're homeless and you don't have a place to go, then you're going back into the shelter system um, or you're on the street. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think happened was that, um, you know, there were there were large numbers of hotels that were opened and folks were able to get placed there. And then we had this sort of big backlash from folks who lived near those hotels, right? So you know, I'll just use the Upper West Side for as one example. Um, but it really happens all over that I think people like the idea of having, you know, homeless people housed, right? But sort of not in my backyard, right? So those are the folks that, that we call NIMBY, right? the NIMBY folks. Um, they want people to have services. They want them to be treated well. They want them to get therapy and all of that but they don't want it happening in their neighborhood because for them, you know, those folks coming into the neighborhood and I'm saying those folks on purpose, because that's what, that's what the conversation becomes. It becomes about those folks and the othering of the marginalized. And so um, then there's a challenge, right? Because then there's, there are folks who are saying, you know, we want them to get services, but not here, but then where do they go? And then if you don't have enough beds in the shelter system, we're sort of everyone sort of, you know, shrugging their shoulders with their hands up, trying to scratch their heads to think about what else can happen. Yeah. You know, that actually brings me to an interesting topic, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, NIMBY folks. We we want to see people get the help, but we don't necessarily want that happening in our backyards. And I think that's actually an important question to kind of talk about a little bit. Um, Thinking about one, safety, ensuring that those people that need the help um, are getting it. And Um, I know in New York City, oftentimes, if you're riding the train, if you're walking down the street, you can see a lot of unstable, mentally ill people that are not necessarily getting the help that they need. So um, one question is, how do you um, ensure that you're safe, your children are safe um, within your neighborhood, while also making sure that you're not really displacing or making things harder for people who already have it hard? Yeah, that that's a tough question, right? Because um, it's really about you know having adequate services, right? So you know, folks are concerned about safety; they're concerned about drug use and all of that, um, vandalism. Um, folks just sort of hanging around, um, and with each of those systems, right? Going to the shelter system, you know, there there are rules, right? So people don't just come in and just sort of hang out, hang out all day. There are services that folks try to put in place. And for some shelters, right, not all, but some folks are required to be outside for a certain part of the day. 
And if they're not employed, um, if they don't have family where they can go and sort of touch base with, which it was even more difficult during COVID, it's like, what can people do? Um, and the answer is really nothing, right? They, folks don't have a place to go. And so I think then we, we have to think outside of, you know, the, the things that just impact us and think about, you know, how do we address the issue from the top down? And when I say the top down, I mean, you know, looking at government to assist with these kinds of challenges. So thinking about more affordable housing, more affordable treatment, um, community-based care, the things that um, will really help to make a difference, right? And finding folks in supportive housing where they can get access to mental health and physical health and legal support. Um, but, you know, those are often specialized services that come along with supportive housing. And those lines or waiting lists are super long. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge challenge that I think for many of us, we're looking to policymakers, um, government, and, and thinking about funding and how, the, how those three things can help. And I think, you know, folks can sign petitions and sort of get involved in any way that they can. But I think if we're, if we're looking to have some real change, it's really going to come on a policy level. So speaking of policy, uh, one thing that's been spoken about quite a bit during the past year, um, and specifically when we're talking about how we fund things, is defund the police. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is not to specifically focus on the police aspect, but where the other money would be allocated, right? And one of those areas would be in social work and counseling, because a lot of the disturbances calls, uh, domestic violence calls, et cetera, can usually be solved with a social worker. And so um, given what you're saying, uh, part of that is that a lot of the money needs to go into public housing and um, generating programs that help, you know, give people these basic incomes or uh, shelter, food, et cetera, so that they can develop on their own and make those steps. But do you think um, adding funding to counseling programs or social work programs would also uh, help this crisis? So absolutely. I would say that um, setting aside funding specifically for mental health is important. And I think given all that we've seen during COVID and not just for the mentally ill, but really for everyone, right? Um, for, for our community, and I mean collectively at large, adding funding so that people can have access to care. That is one of the biggest challenges that we see. Um, if, you know, I can talk to my colleagues across the mental health field and if they work at a hospital or they work at a clinic, the waiting list to, to get therapy from a mental health clinician is sometimes months long, right? It's because the need is so high, but we don't have enough hands and feet. Like we just don't have enough bodies in place to be able to provide the service. Um, I can tell you that when I started in September as the executive director of the Hope Center, you know, coming directly from governments, um, we had a waiting list of 76 people. And some of those people had been waiting for several months. And I mean, several months, meaning like eight months. Um, and so, you know, it just tells you about, about the need. Um, and even in private practice, right, my, my private practice colleagues are, you know, exhausted because they're working, you know, they're working and then they're also doing private practice. And so they're seeing clients in both spaces. Yeah. And, you know, just from 
actual, my personal contacts I've noticed and what they've told me is that some, a lot of people are misdiagnosed as well. So going to neurologists first, um, instead of going straight to a therapist, because the system doesn't know how to qualify them accurately. And so getting tossed from place to place before they're correctly assigned to a therapist uh, is also an issue. Do you see that as well? Yeah, that's a that's actually a great question. So um, I think for many people, right, um, the notion, you know, we, we can talk about stigma and the notion of getting mental health, but I think for most folks, they do feel a lot of symptoms in their bodies. So it makes sense that if they are exhausted, if they're having trouble sleeping, if they're, if they, you know, have aches and pains in certain places that they would absolutely go to see a neurologist or go to see their medical doctor first and foremost. Um, and I think what's great about that is that they're at least asking the questions and getting care. Um, what I would love to see is more doctors taking the time to ask screening, screening questions related to mental health and then connecting folks who they think are appropriate for mental health services, connecting those folks back to the mental health care providers, right? So, you know, if you have a broken foot, um, you go see a foot doctor or podiatrist, right? Um, so we want to make sure that folks are getting the right care in the right places as quickly as possible. And I think um, asking mental health questions, at least a basic screen, can help with that. I mean, that's sort of like changing the system of, of, of healthcare, but that would be um, ideal. Yeah. So I think we've kind of settled on two things that would really help to change the system is one, adding additional funding to uh, homeless centers and care systems, as well as social work, and also ensuring that healthcare workers have an efficient system to assess people that are coming in and accurately diagnose them so yeah. that not only they know where that person should go to get the best health care, but also uh, the next person that comes around knows what they have been through previously. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think with that, the next thing that we kind of have to talk about is the remaining aspect of why people end up in that place to begin with, right? So we talked about the issues with homelessness and evictions, which we saw a reduction in during COVID, but um, we know that there's a bunch of factors. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we always say most things kind of begin in the home. And uh, a lot of people that end up on the street, especially if they're going through the system or, or had some type of addiction or something like that, it's because of untreated mental illness or trauma that they've dealt with. Um, and so now as we're, you know, going through these periods of loneliness, we're going through these periods of uh, depression and times where we really have to sit with ourselves and deal with our mental state. I want to ask you as a psychotherapist, how do you suggest we approach the idea of mental health checks or therapy with our families? And on top of that, how do we recognize maybe signs worry signs within ourselves or with our loved ones? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm going to take the second part of that question first, right? So, because um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about recognizing, recognizing signs, right, of mental stress or mental distress in our families. 
um, and in ourselves, right? So we can think about some of the things that would cause concern, which would be like excessive worry or fear, obviously, you know, ongoing and excessive feelings of sadness or feeling or low mood. Um, if someone has difficulty concentrating and learning ongoing, that can sort of be a red flag. Um, if someone has extreme mood changes, right, um, highs and lows, um, that could be of concern. If someone has a lot of, you know, strong feelings of anger or irritability, that could also be a sign. Um, we can look at sleeping habits. So if someone has difficulty sleeping all the time or has difficulty, you know, not sleeping at all and they're constantly tired with low energy, that is also a sign. Um, obviously something that's super obvious, um, can be related to, you know, perceptions around real reality. Um, someone may be losing touch with, with reality in some way, shape or form or having delusions or hallucinations. Um, we can also look, look at the use of alcohol or substances to soothe themselves, um, as well as thoughts of self-harm, right? So those may be things as well. So that was a long list, but I wanted right. to give some information around that. No, absolutely. And I, I just wanted to add on a, a little bit of a question um, for you there based on your response. I know for me, at least, a lot of those symptoms I feel because of COVID. <laughs> you know, during this time, those uh, feelings of sadness or loneliness, those uh, mm -hmm. maybe an uptick in uh, use of substances like alcohol. <laughs> mm -hmm. So how do we distinguish when something is, you know, a more usual response to some sort of new situation coming in and affecting our mood or something that's a little bit more serious and something that we need to really dive in and get help with? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's something that, you know, has really been across the board, right? So there's a reason why alcohol sales have gone up tremendously during COVID, right? Because I think for many people, you know, we've seen how many Zoom parties and like wine parties and celebrations, right? Because folks were trying to sort of um, find ways to stay connected during COVID and rightfully so. Um, but I think when those things um, start to become concerning is when we really can't function without them, right? So if we find ourselves having um, substances or alcohol because we can't fall asleep, or we, because we needed to feel better, right? And sort of going beyond the, the joking terms around like, oh, that was a tough day, I need a drink, right? If every day you need a drink because every day is tough, we wanna to start to think a little bit more about, about that. Um, and so when we're using those um, to cope daily, I think is when we wanna think a little bit more deeply around whether or not we also need some support and some help in other ways because we wanna help people cope positively and safely with the feelings that they're having. Um, and so feelings around anxiety and depression have also gone up, but also rightfully so given the circumstances. But I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're not out here self-diagnosing, right? That you are actually getting connected to a professional who can help make that determination alongside you. Not for you, but alongside you. So since you're saying, you know, ensure that we are not self-diagnosing, um, working with somebody. Do you have any good outlets to find a therapist or have any recommendations on where someone can go to find that help? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So 
Um, I would say there are many resources that folks can turn to to get um, to get connected with a good clinician. Um, so uh, one is your insurance company. So if you go on, you know, the website for your insurance and you look for mental health providers or behavioral health providers, they will have a long list, I'm sure, of folks that you can take a look at and call. Um, you can look at um, the National Association of Social Workers. You can look at, you can look for psychologists. Um, and you can also look at sites like Psychology Today. Another website that I like to share um, with folks, especially with Black women, is called Therapy for Black Girls. Um, so those are some of the resources that I share. And then I also personally keep a list of clinicians, um, either that I've worked with directly or um, that I know of in the New York City area so that folks can um, get a, a resource directly from me and can share that with their with their circle of support. Um, and I think, you know, that's also been um, helpful in terms of people feeling like they have um, some kind of connection with um, and some kind of direction with finding um, finding care. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I know a lot of the listeners will have a, a few of those in their Instagram feeds as well. I know I follow uh, Black Girl Therapy as well. So mm-hmm. uh, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's circle back and kind of tackle the second part of that first question, which is how do we kind of approach the idea of therapy and getting mental health checks with our family? Yeah. So, um, you know, remembering that, you know, there's no one size fits all treatment. Um, For some people, they would be okay with going to counseling, right? And getting some one-on-one talk therapies. For some folks, they may need very specialized therapy treatments. Um, For some folks, they may need medication. Um, For other folks, it will be, you know, adding on additional social support. Um, and certainly finding some educational tools that will help them. So I think that's important. Um, you know, and watching someone that you love um, go through challenges is really hard to do, right? So I want to acknowledge that as well. And things that can seem, you know, very obvious to you um, may not be obvious to the person who's experiencing, um, you know, difficulties, right, around mental health. Um, so it's important to, to remember that because we want to be gentle um, and we want to be insightful as we approach people and talking through their issues. So I want to, again, stress that folks can always benefit from, from talking to a, a trained professional. And so that should also and always really be um, the goal is getting them connected to services. Um, but you want to think about finding the right time um, and place to have the conversation. Right. So I would say not right after you know, an argument or some kind of disagreement, right? But really thinking about how to approach the subject, um, bringing it up in a gentle way um, that can help express your concern and being clear about what those concerns are. Um, If you are someone who has gone to therapy before, you can think about sharing your own experience about therapy or why you sought therapy in the first place. Um, and then there are, you know, many misconceptions about mental health, right? People still use terms like terms like crazy and out of control, right? And those don't necessarily have to be the things that I think um, can be stigmatizing when we're talking about therapy, right? It's a, a place um, for support where you can get some tools about how to cope positively and cope well with the stressors of life. So I think thinking about that 
um, and, and the ways in which we approach folks that we care about can really go a long way in suggesting counseling. Yeah. So I think that's really important because the two examples that come to mind would be dealing with, you know, a loved one, be that romantic partner or with someone like a parent, right? Where you can have the most conflict with or would know the most intimate details about their life, the struggles that they're going through can also be very contentious to bring up the idea of going to therapy when you notice these negative signs with them. So uh, just to summarize kind of those key steps that you're saying is one, find the right place to introduce this conversation. Try not to introduce that conversation in a time of conflict or right after a time of conflict. And also uh, ensure that you're approaching it sensitively and um, approaching it as not something that someone needs to go to because they're crazy or because they're in desperate need, but a way to have another outlet to express their feelings or to find help for some pain that they may be going through. Beautifully said. Yes. Amazing. Dr. Green, this conversation was amazing. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. I know there's so much more to talk about and that we could talk about uh, diving into, you know, Black family members versus, you know, other ethnicities, whether or not that differs, dealing with trauma. But uh, for today, I think just the introduction of how cities deal with mentally ill and how we can deal with identifying uh, signs of mental illness or signs uh, that we need help in our families and with ourselves is the perfect step. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I do hope that what I've shared is helpful. Absolutely. Have a good one. You too. Thank you all for joining and listening in to the most recent episode of Unpacked. I hope you enjoyed it and took a little something from the conversation. As always, if you liked what you heard, please rate and share, comment if you have any feedback. I'm always willing to hear and subscribe. See you on the next time.